This podcast is brought to you by Alaska Air Cargo. You just can't ship seafood any fresher. Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we explore the most interesting and compelling seafood news of the week. I'm Drew Cherry, Editorial Director. I'm here with John Fiorillo, Executive Editor. Hi, John. Hello. And I'm here with Rachel Sapin, reporter. So, uh, this has been a big week uh, for some of the uh, top executives in the sector. So we're going to hit on that topic uh, first. In particular, the uh, indictment of Bumblebee CEO, I guess former Bumblebee CEO, Chris Lashevsky, former Intrafish Person of the Year, incidentally. Uh, John, tell us a little bit about uh, the saga and how we got to where we are with Mr. Lashevsky and where things might be headed next. Yeah, I mean, this is, as so many readers know, this has been going on for... The case, uh, there's two cases actually. There's a DOJ uh, case, criminal case, and then there's a civil case uh, filed by retailers uh, across the country um, for alleged price fixing. So um, Bumblebee, the company, has settled uh, with a $25 million settlement with the DOJ, and um, the broader case, the antitrust case is still going on. Uh, the Lashewski case, which uh, we reported on a week or so ago, is his personal indictment for his role in this alleged conspiracy to fix prices. And, uh, yeah, so he gets arraigned on June 6th, and that's when the charges are formally brought against him, and we'll see. Um, his attorney and NFI have cautioned everybody um, from assuming guilt. Um, you know, he, he is innocent until proven guilty, so um, they're being, you know, they're warning that don't just assume he's uh, he's going to prison or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, uh, where it's going to head, it, it's hard to say. I mean, the others who pled guilty have, um, are waiting sentencing, but, you know, they've, they've struck plea deals and um, so we'll see where it goes. I mean, generally these things get dealed out somehow, but who knows? I mean, without going too far out, uh, on a limb, I mean, when you have one top executive, obviously it's going to take more than one person to collude. So does this get does this get wider, and how how much do you think this loops in? Other executives from other companies. I mean, we've we've gotten a hold of some of the redacted documents on uh, on some of the stories of alleged stories of collusion, um, and according to them, and again, these are these are plaintiff uh, claims. Um, this was far and wide and included everyone on every level. But how broad do you think this goes by the time we're all done? Now that. Lashevsky's been wrapped up into it. It's hard to say. I mean, one of the uh, tuna canners was actually the whistleblower on this. So the likelihood that an exec from there would, you know, top exec would, would go is somewhat less, I, I think, since 
they blew the whistle. I mean, in some of that redacted stuff that was not redacted correctly and was seen by journalists who follow the, the case, um, uh, Lushuski's name comes up quite a bit. I would say quite a bit more than any other top executive of uh, the CEO level at the other two companies. So maybe that means something, maybe it doesn't, but it, it clearly his involvement seemed to, you know, his alleged involvement seems to run uh, stronger than the other exec CEOs at, at uh, the other canners. So. Now, Lashisky, I mean, the, the interesting thing about him is he's held a lot of um, other roles and other leadership roles in the industry with Seafood Sustainability, uh, International Seafood Sustainability Foundation uh, with NFI. Um, and he also holds some important uh, ownership roles in some companies. And you've talked to some of the people or at least gotten statements from them. So yeah. is that going to have any bearing on those companies and you get a sense that there's going to be any repercussions for him there? Uh, at this point, I, I sense it's a wait and see. Um, American Seafoods got back to us with a statement, which was, you know, pretty much wait and see. <laughs> and NFI, I think they're a lot more supportive of Chris. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's very odd to me that they have a, an anti-fraud bureau within connected to NFI, yet nothing's been done to any of the tuna canners for, you know, fraud, complete fraud on pricing, and uh, doesn't appear like they are motivated to do anything either. So I don't see a lot of repercussions from his industry connections, whether they be with a private company or a trade group, but again, maybe it will depend on the ultimate outcome. All right, well, let's shift gears to uh, another notable top executive. Uh, yesterday, American Seafoods announced that Ben Boudon uh, would be resigning from American Seafoods after 25 years with the group. Yep. Um, what are your thoughts and reflections on that? I mean, he's loomed large over this industry for a long, long time as one of the architects of the modern Alaska Pollock industry. Um, what are your thoughts on his departure? Well, I think there's some parallels between Barrett and uh, Chuck Bunger. I think both of them are very strong personalities. Both of them have led a lot of uh, innovation and expansion of particularly the Pacific Northwest Pollock and salmon and crab um, fleets and industries. So um, this is, a, this is a, a founding father of this industry, particularly out here in the in the Northwest, and um, you know, I, I don't think it was unexpected. He scaled back quite a bit after they hired a new CEO not too long ago, and um, so it wasn't unexpected to me. But it's you know, it's always a little wow when it happens, you know. So I have not spoken with him since. I hope to shortly and find out, you know if he'll stay engaged in any way in a new venture or something like that, but I don't know that. You know, we got an interesting kind of changing of the guard over the past few years, and maybe that's part of, um, you know, you and I having been covering the industry for a long time as you start to see some of these top executives go. But there, there's been quite a, a shift, and uh, we see a lot of new faces in the industry, and it's going to be interesting to see if they take the same involvement and leadership role, because literally... 
when you're looking at people like, for example, Henry Damone, you're looking at people like Bernd Boudal, they literally began as deckhands, mm -hmm. which is kind of one of the things that's remarkable about this uh, about this industry. But maybe one of the uh, one of the things we have to accept as time goes on that you're going to need to bring in more professional management. You're going to bring in um, new ways of thinking about the global economy as these companies get larger and larger. Well, uh, and that, that that's true. But we were in New York City at the Investor Forum uh, last week, and um, you know Jeff Davis from formerly with Blue Harvest spoke. And uh, formerly with American Seafood. And for, yeah, uh, spoke. And here's a man who literally came up with his boots on. He was, you know, he was on boats. He was in the industry as a young man, and has, you know, reached the top top of the industry. And to hear him talk about it, it was I, I described it to somebody as like a graduate level course in seafood. It was just so deep in understanding, as as opposed to some of the younger people coming along, granted they don't have the experience and stuff, but there is a certain um, sophistication of knowing this industry that comes from the men and women who actually wore boots and fished and, you know, did the dirty work um, over the years. And he, they're all, all three of those guys we've been talking about are great examples of that. Yeah, it was interesting because there was uh, one of the, pan the panel that Jeff Davis was, was on was a private equity uh, an investor panel, and the the attendees at these events, there's a lot of institutional private equity hedge fund people that have a lot of money to invest in seafood, and they're either deploying it there, or they want to. And what you see is uh, you do see this kind of optimism uh, and kind of this um, smartest guy in the room attitude with some of these people when they've been authorized to invest and spend all this money. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars that they're authorized to invest um, in these sectors, and it's always interesting. You know, you you can end up being a little bit smug when you are talking to them, or you know, um, mingling with them, and they're talking about all their big plans about how they're going to uh, change the industry and combine all these things. So it, it was interesting to hear Jeff sort of splash a little cold water on that and kind of say. You know, it, it it takes time. You have to understand some severe complexities about this industry when it comes to regulations, when it comes to uh, to staffing, when it comes to a man, you know, to, to management and fish health and all of that stuff. So, um, good reminder. But I I think what was probably most interesting about our event um, was that um, you saw many, many attendees that had never been invested in the sector before with a lot of money. So some of these big, big guys like like Carlisle, for example, um, that maybe have played around here or there. I think Carlisle had a little stake in Pacific Andes, you know, 15 years ago or something. But you have a lot of people that are uh, looking at the industry that have never looked at it before. And we're about to see some pretty massive change it's clear that it's gotten onto the radar of anybody that's interested in investing in the uh, ag protein space so um, it was a pretty interesting uh, mix uh, crowd and it seemed to me if I was sort of pull out some of the themes that we discussed either on stage or 
in the crowds or, or in our um, time with the, the speakers and attendees, there were some obvious themes that came up. And you were saying one of the uh, one of the themes that arose was was how shrimp may be the next sector to begin to go through this salmonization. We can invent the word salmonization because I like it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there it's the next uh, it's the next one to start to go through this process. I mean, it's far more complex. But you were talking to Malcolm Pye of Benchmark, who mm-hmm. kind of said, "Watch this space." Yeah, he he definitely um, he definitely talked about getting control of the breeding and the disease and all these issues that have plagued shrimp, you know, for for years and decades, and how they're a lot closer to understanding and controlling all that than they've ever been, and the stability that would provide uh, globally uh, would would be immense and unprecedented. So, um, yeah, I mean, after speaking with him in particular, I, I was pretty optimistic about what I had heard, you know, so. And it seemed like, too, with Carlos Diaz of, of BOMAR uh, and his fantastic opening um, presentation, um, you know, that the feed companies, and we see this in our, in our headlines and our reporting, um, particularly over the past year, but the feed companies are on a race to get into the shrimp sector mm-hmm. and on a race to be number one in in uh, supplying feed. And when you get that, they themselves bring that professionalization because they consolidate on the feed side, and you know they they um, they begin to to in effect start to control and shape the the industry a little bit when it's in those early phases. So. Um, that was definitely one that jumped out and of course the other one is land-based uh, salmon we had Atlantic Sapphire there um, Jose Prado the CFO was there mm-hmm. presenting um, we also had uh, Ron Stavish from Aqua Bounty and there of course now uh, in addition to their GE salmon uh, actually look you know producing um, grow out salmon at, at their facilities it's funny so, I wanted to mention about um, uh, Aqua Bounty, because Ron made a very interesting statement that kind of, I think, is spot on but gets overlooked. They, they, they're pioneers in recirculating aquaculture systems, I mean land-based systems, although that always becomes secondary to the GM nature of mm. their operation. But I don't think they get enough credit for their investment in land-based aquaculture, uh, salmon aquaculture in this case. So. It was just interesting. I heard him say that, and I thought, "Well, you know, you really, you guys really don't get any credit for a lot of work in that in that direction." You know. You know what I found interesting is that we didn't, you know, in that panel, uh, we hit on a range of topics because we talked fish health, we talked genetics, we talked markets, but you know, one of the things that I mentioned, but we sort of hit on it and then moved on was the the GE aspect of Aqua Bounty. Mm-hmm. And when we were doing our feed panel, you know, a lot of these produce these alternative ingredient producers, they are turning towards GM ingredients sure. in their feed to offset the need for uh, for fish meal inclusion. And I don't even think we're close to done with that. Uh, obviously, that's going to take off. You, you, we had ADM on the panel, and just I mean, just imagine when they start 
actually getting serious about the aquaculture sector, and we have Cargill. So, I, you know, it seems to me that what once seemed absolutely insurmountable maybe five years ago, um, I don't know, you, you, you do <laughs> talk with Bounty, you got to hand it to them that they have totally. just kept plodding along, and now it does sort of seem like there's some turning of the opinion about GE now that people see that it can have can play a role in food security, it can play a role in uh, in sustainability even. So well, I we, thought it was interesting. We had that study out of Canada uh, last week of the week before that was a consumer survey on their feelings towards genetically engineered foods. And the headline was that they they wanted them labeled. Okay, that's fine. But the, the secondary story there was when they when they asked them about were they scared that it wasn't as safe or you know the quality or any of those um, food quality issues about it, there it was pretty evenly split between it's fine, I don't know, and I don't trust it kind of thing. So that surprised me um, because the I don't know group is you know that you can move them one way or the other, but if you move them in the I don't care, like it's fine. I thought that was a really telling survey that attitudes are really beginning to shift on this because people learn that, well, all the corn you eat and all these things you eat, you've been eating for years, they've been engineered genetically. Nobody nobody really talks about it too much, you know, but so we'll see. But I agree with the Aqua Bounty. They get props for having the uh, longevity and stick to itness <laughs> to keep plugging away yeah just deep fry it you know if you deep fry it americans will eat they'll eat anything it kills everything yeah well i think uh gm salmon makes a perfect segue into wild alaska salmon (laughs) so (laughs) well kind (laughs) of so uh and we have uh rachel here to tell us about that she was on hand for the arrival of the first uh, Copper River salmon, which pound for pound, I think is about the same price as gold right now, but <laughs> maybe, uh, more. <laughs> maybe more. So your impressions as the giant uh, Salmon 30 Salmon, we have to call it that because that's its name, as the Salmon 30, salmon 30 Salmon landed, uh, what were your impressions of just the whole event? It's sort of your, your first round of Copper River. Uh, what's your impressions of the whole the whole uh, brouhaha. Um, I thought that event was fantastic. I thought it was so much fun. Um, there was so much excitement in there, seeing the salmon, the roll, the red carpet rolled out for it, and the salmon just brought, like, it was just like a baby being lifted in the air, like, <laughs> Lion King, I don't know, it was magical. And everybody was just excited, you know, we got to, watching it get sliced up by Trident, um, kind of new this year, um, was doing that, and, uh, yeah, just uh, the different chefs were so excited to just, you could just tell everyone just wanted their hands on it, like it had some sort of power or something. Um, I think it speaks a lot to the culture around salmon here, oh, yeah. the worshipping of it, almost. Um, 
But yeah, after, you know, that was probably the high point of Copper River. From there, it's been <laughs> really low runs, and, and it's been expensive. Um, Copper and King have been the same price, really, since the opening a couple weeks ago. Like, what, $40 a pound? Yeah. Like, $40 for um, Sakai, and then, like, 50 for King. I mean, so um, a lot of... Uh, restaurant owners and retailers I've spoken with, you know, they, they either don't have it, they don't want to talk about the price, or they're just really angry about the price and um, because they can't get either, really, yeah. um, for something they can sell to customers. Is there any, just in, in talking to the uh, to ADF and G up there, is there any indication that things are in any way unusual this year, or are they just saying, hey, let's just wait till the next openers and see what happens, or are they, you sense they're kind of concerned um you know they're biologists there so i don't know i think they are just like we'll see you know let's not be crazy anytime we talk but um they you know they did say it was a late start this year um and that was the main thing i heard um it has picked up a little bit the most recent opener i think was from monday they got finally like about twenty thousand sockeye versus the previous one where they only got like three thousand um but that's still way below their prediction of like 97,000 at this time. So, you know, um, I've kind of heard from um, the restaurant owners around Seattle I've been speaking with, they're kind of thinking this season, the Copper River is going to end early, potentially, just because they're not getting um, the runs they thought they would. Um, but that, you know, that we still have Bristol Bay opening up today, I think. Um, yeah. And the commercial, kind of a soft commercial start to that happening Monday. And I think that harvest is expected to be pretty good. So hopefully um, we see a little better, <laughs> a little better harvest with that one, better prices. Because, um, yeah, Copper River, it's been, it's been very scarce um, and it's been expensive. Yeah. And uh, one thing I did notice, we were, because you know, you just can't get your hands on Copper River, so I don't expect to be eating any fresh salmon this weekend. But um, one thing I did notice at some of the local stores here, and I would bet that it's happening across the nation more, is that people are, they probably have hyped it, or they expect around Memorial Day that there's going to be fresh salmon. Uh, I've noticed people laying out a bit more refreshed salmon in their, in their cases, yeah. uh, which is, um, you know, which is... Fine. That's a whole other show if you want my opinions about refreshing. Well, one quick thing, you know, Rachel talked about the, the marketing of it and the fanfare and the high prices. And I know we all, we all know the story of Copper River. It's a marketing juggernaut has been, you know, it's a shining example in the seafood industry. But I'm starting to see Bristol Bay really achieve similar success in the market. And the one thing about Bristol Bay that it will always have over Copper River is it's always going to be less expensive. Mm -hmm. So if they can carve out a similar niche like, oh yeah, Copper's first, but you know we're coming in right behind it over the 4th of July, if they can make it the American 4th of July fish or whatever, um, which they have been doing. They've been really starting to, to get that uh, consumer niche. It would be interesting to see. Because so, it, it generally is uh, less expensive, especially as the season goes on, which, you know, people can't afford $40 for salmon. I don't no. care what anybody says. But. No. Uh, that's interesting because, uh, Rachel, you wrote a story on Bristol Bay, um, the uh, Bristol Bay Regional Seafood Development Association, 
released a report um, on last season and what the makeup was of the formats. And what we've seen over time, you did a really nice graph on this, it showed that indeed fresh is taking more and more of that pie, canned is going, is getting less and less, uh, and then frozen as well, frozen fillets. And, and we know there's been investments by Silver Bay and other people into making that happen. But um, all indications are that it's gonna go the way that, uh, that it has been that it's gonna be going more towards fresh, and so I, I think that's reasonable that we'll see more on our plates, uh, more fresh Bristol Bay salmon on our plates, yep. which I'm happy about. Of course you are. Um, right, you know, a couple other things that we'll just uh, hit on. Um, you know, we're a very American podcast this week because it's Friday morning for us, and it's Friday evening for the Europeans. They get to go and drink their pints or Kirsch or wine or whatever they drink over there in Europe. Um, so unfortunately, that also means that uh, Lola Navarro, who's um, absolutely a, a fantastic, uh, done a fantastic job covering Chile, is not with us. Um, in fact, I think Lola's in Thailand. I yes. think about it. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, but we had two big breaking news stories this morning. Uh, we had Aqua Chile acquiring uh, Salmonas uh, Magallanes. Uh, and then we had uh, Los Fiordos acquiring uh, Frio Sewer as well. And we've been hearing from the financial sector, from uh, bankers, financiers, analysts, that this is kind of Chile's time. And I think if, if ever we needed more of a sign that there is, that Chile is coming back, that it's going to be uh, completely uh, making a resurgence. Um, this is it. We've had Kamanchaka IPO and the Oslo Bors. We've had Aqua Chile looking to do that, and certainly this uh, this move uh, here with uh, moving into Magallanes is only going to help them make that case and help them raise money. Um, and uh, and of course Los Fiordos getting Frio source. So we're seeing a lot of movement. We're seeing a consolidation. We're seeing things really really happen. Um, in Chile, and I think that's uh, it's good for the industry, and um, certainly that industry needs to be uh, consolidated. But it looks like that's going to be happening uh, quite a bit more if uh, if these stories are um, are any indication. Well, okay, that's it for this edition of the Interfish Podcast. You will hear from us next week. Uh, don't forget you can track us on intrafish.com with our many newsletters. Uh, you can find us on social media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, all of that jazz. And we'll look forward to speaking with you soon. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Alaska Air Cargo. You just can't ship seafood any fresher.